I'm sure if you asked any of these gentle parenting experts, they would say like parenting is the most important work in the world. That's why they've devoted their careers to giving us all the scripts. But when you're perpetually downplaying the hard parts of it, you're not actually ever making visible the parts of it that we need to change. You're listening to Burnt Toast. This is the podcast where we talk about diet culture, fat phobia, parenting, and health. I'm Virginia Soltzman, and I also write the Burnt Toast newsletter. Today, I am chatting with Sarah Louise Peterson. She is a frequent flyer here on Burnt Toast. She is our resident momfluencer expert. She is also an author of an upcoming book about momfluencers and the awesome new Substack newsletter, In Pursuit of Clean Countertops. Today, Sarah and I are chatting about the gentle parenting trend, which I realize may seem a little off topic from some of our usual beats here. But as you will hear in the conversation, it intersects quite a lot with our conversations around gender roles and diet culture, all of that stuff. So this is a really good one. Sarah is so much fun. I hope you enjoy the conversation. So if you are liking the Burnt Toast podcast, you might be thinking, how can I support the show? Here are two key ways. First, subscribe to Burnt Toast in your podcast player. And for bonus points, please leave us a rating or review. This is free and it really helps other folks find the show in podcast land. Next, consider a paid Burnt Toast subscription. For just $5 per month or $50 a year, you will get subscriber-only bonus episodes of the podcast where I answer your questions and also debunk popular diet trends. They are a lot of fun. You'll also get full access to the Burnt Toast newsletter, which includes reported essays and my monthly Ask Virginia column. And you'll be a part of the Burnt Toast community with commenting privileges and our super awesome Friday thread discussions. Again, it's just $5 per month or $50 for the year. Paid subscriptions are the reason you will never hear a diet ad in this space. They also let me offer comp subscriptions to folks who need them. And if that's you, just email me, no questions asked. So click the link in your episode description or go to virginiasoulsmith.substack.com to subscribe. And thank you for supporting independent anti-diet journalism. Hi, Sarah. Hi. Thank you for coming back to talk more about people on the internet with us. I really appreciate it. (laughs) Thank you for having me, as always. Um, You are the resident burnt toast momfluencer expert, which I admit (laughs) is not a category of expert. I knew that I needed when I launched the podcast, but it turns out it very much is. Really happy to be that person. And you just started your own Substack newsletter. So let's talk about that first. Yeah. So I had wanted to start it for a while. It's called In Pursuit of Clean Countertops. And it's not about countertops. It's not about cleaning. It's basically just like a nod to all of the things that momfluencer culture sort of invites you to pursue and desire and want. So yeah, I started it a little over a month ago based on an inflammatory post by Ballerina Farm, Hannah Nieleman. Mm-hmm. She's a big one. And her husband, Daniel Nieleman, started his own Instagram account relatively recently. And he posted this post about the way that Hannah loves to clean and natural light and the children like to congregate around her. And it just made me feel a lot of a lot of feelings, Virginia. Yeah. So, yeah. So, yeah, that was the post that started it all. <laughs> yeah. I had a lot of feelings about that post as well. And I will link in the transcript to that post because I think my readers, listeners will also share your feelings. Yeah. I guess my goal is to sort of take the text threads that we all have with our friends, which 
can be more like, holy shit, did you see this? This is enraging. This is infuriating. And just kind of explore why is it infuriating? You know, why Mm -hmm. am I feeling these feelings? To sort of expose the systemic issues at play. So today you are coming back on this podcast because we want to dissect what is sort of a sub-trend of momfluencing culture. We are talking about gentle parenting. I also see it called positive parenting. It's important to say right off the bat, there is like no official definition of this concept. I'll link to a piece Jessica Gross wrote for the New York Times where she described it as a sort of open source melange interpreted and remixed by moms across the country. And yes, that is really what it is. Mm -hmm. Why don't we start, Sarah, do you want to read this definition that we found from this piece in The New Yorker by Jessica Winter, just so everyone's on the same page about what we're talking about here. Okay. In its broadest outlines, gentle parenting centers on acknowledging a child's feelings and the motivations behind challenging behavior, as opposed to correcting the behavior itself. The gentle parent holds firm boundaries, gives a child choices instead of orders, eschews rewards, punishments, and threats. No sticker charts, no timeouts, no, I will turn this car right around. Instead of issuing commands, put on your shoes. The parent strives to understand why a child is acting out in the first place. What's up, honey? You don't want to put your shoes on? Or perhaps narrates the problem. You're playing with your trains because putting on shoes doesn't feel good. The gently parented child, the theory goes, learns to recognize and control her emotions because a caregiver is consistently affirming those emotions as real and important. The parent provides a model for keeping one's cool, but no overt incentives for doing so. The kid becomes a person who is self-regulating, kind, and conscientious because she wants to be, not because it will result in ice cream. That is what I want my children to be. Totally. (laughs) Is the thing. Like, it is... Speaking to this goal, I think a lot of us have for kids, and yet the path for getting there is so convoluted. So, yeah, let's talk a little bit about, like, when we each first became aware of this trend and how it's showing up in our parenting. I mean, I think I became aware of it kind of by way of attachment parenting, which Mm. was, like, just everywhere when I had my first kid, who is almost 10. and. Yeah, just attachment parenting, the whole, you know, if the kid is crying, the kid is not being annoying, it's expressing needs or desires, and it's your job as the parent to interpret the cries and basically Mm -hmm. not thinking of the kid's behavior as an impediment to your life, but as the kid expressing his or her or their individuality. And I was like all about this when I was pregnant. I read all the Dr. Sears books, and then almost Immediately after having my first child, I just felt like I was being gaslit. Like, I remember reading something. What was that? Oh, yeah, Kelly. Do you remember that, like, nursing website, Kelly? It's something Kelly. Oh, yes, Kelly, mom. Oh, I'm having a trauma response. I know. (laughs) Oof, oof, it's been a minute. (laughs) I know. And I was reading. I was, like, desperate for sleep. My kid was not sleeping. And I remember reading on Kelly, mom, something like, When cluster feeding happens and baby only wants mom, consider it a compliment. And I was just like, fuck this, fuck this. Not a compliment. I'm so tired. Attachment parenting kind of feeds into gentle parenting really well in that it's all about prioritizing the child's needs. And very Mm -hmm. rarely are the parent or the mother's needs anywhere in the conversation. 
I had a pretty knee-jerk reaction against attachment parenting, although, you know, my oldest is eight, so same time period, it was everywhere. I really immediately was like, oh, but it's just code for the woman does everything. And I'm not, I didn't sign up for that. It's not what we've agreed upon in my house. We're not doing it. Mm -hmm. But then the gentle parenting thing for me It was discovering Janet Lansbury's work. When my older daughter was a toddler and the toddler tantrum started, I'm constantly having to negotiate with this person who is totally irrational according to the way I understand the world Mm -hmm. and who, like, is really demanding a lot from me in ways that just don't make sense anymore. Like, at least with a baby, you're like, well, you're hungry or you're cold or whatever. You know, like, their needs are sort of more concrete and not emotional. But suddenly in the toddler years, you're sorting through this like emotional stuff as well as, I'm not going to get mail from people being like, babies have emotions. I know they do. (laughs) I know they have emotions. I'm not saying they didn't have emotions. There's something about the engaging with a tiny verbal child or quasi-verbal child where it's just much harder for me. And so this whole gentle parenting approach You know, I sort of clung to it like a life raft for a little bit of like, okay, will someone explain why these children scream so much? Uh And gentle parenting like has these answers for you. And I'm putting answers in quotes. But what was interesting and what kind of developed very quickly with me, even when my older daughter was like two or three or little toddler, was how much it didn't work with her. <laughs> yes. Yes. Like all this advice, you know, the stuff in the description you read about like, oh, what's up? You don't want to put your shoes on or you're playing with trains because shoes don't feel right, good. Right. Like she would just be enraged when I did that. Yep. And I think it felt like very patronizing to her. I think she was like, I am telling you how I feel through my yelling. Right. You putting words to it is not making it better. Well, one of my challenges that you're speaking to is, you know, you'll get the script or whatever. There are, Mm -hmm. you know, so many scripts. So many scripts. And the lines that you're reciting are at odds with your feelings, which are often rage, impatience, annoyance, frustration, like (laughs) despair. So if you're reciting this script that is like, I can see you're having really big feelings right now, and that's okay. Your big feelings are valid. Mm -hmm. Kids, I think, can tell that you are feeding them a line from a script. Or at least my kid definitely can. And yeah, oftentimes in my household has made things worse. Yeah, it like dials up the pressure. Yes. Because then you're like getting more frustrated while trying to recite this script to them. And, And then you're doubly frustrated because the script isn't working. So speaking of the scripts, we wanted to kind of go through some of these common tropes of the way gentle parenting is performed online. And yeah, a big one is the script. So I put a couple links in for us to look at. Let's see. The first one is Dr. Becky. We have to talk about Dr. Becky. She is sort of the, I don't know, the like president of gentle parenting right now. This is a post I found where it's, when your child says, I hate you, the mantra for yourself is, the truth is in the feeling, not the words. The real story is my child's pain. (sighs) And then the script is, you must be really upset about something to say that to me. Let me take a moment to calm my body, and then let's figure out what's going on. (sighs) And again, like, if I have a child screaming, I hate you, I hope you die, you know, which (laughs) has happened in my life. Right. Me responding with this calmness, it's almost 
like denying the feeling that you're trying, like the goal is to label the feeling, but you're denying the feeling because you're like responding so stoically to their feeling. Something about it feels so inauthentic. The other thing that just really stands out to me in this mantra is the real story is my child's pain, but Mm. there's no room for the parents' feelings in this mantra. I don't disagree with the argument here that like a small child using that word doesn't really mean the word the way an adult does. Like this isn't them being verbally abusive. I understand that. Right. But that doesn't stop it from feeling bad when it happens. And yes, the fact that we are then supposed to so totally center the child's emotions to the point of like us having no emotional response to it. Right. It's just never going to happen that way. So what if the kid is saying, I hate you to the sibling? How are you, you have to attend to the kid who's having feelings and saying, I mm-hmm. hate you. And you have to attend to the kid who is the target of the I hate you. Right. And it's just so much more complicated than any of these scripts would have you believe. There's never an expectation that there's another child. I think what's interesting about this movement is there's a lot of emphasis on not being punitive towards kids when they do bad things. Like Mm -hmm. when they hit, when they bite, when they say, I hate you, you know, an older model of parenting would have been to punish those behaviors. And their argument is we're never going to help kids move past these behaviors if we demonize the kid who's doing the bad thing. Right. Which I understand. And I think there's a lot of usefulness in that concept. But absolutely, if you have a dynamic where an older brother has just slapped his little sister in the face What is that girl learning that, like, someone who loves you can hurt you like that? I understand, of course, that we don't want our children to internalize our feelings. Like, of course. Mm -hmm. But I also don't think it's terrible if our kids see us have an emotional reaction, such as anger, frustration, Mm -hmm. whatever. It's natural to have a reaction when somebody says, I hate you, or when you get slapped in the face. Yeah. And we need to allow for the parents' humanity in all of this. And if your facial expression becomes angry, like, that's okay. You can still value the child's humanity and individuality and hold space for both things. Yeah, there's a lot of talk in these spaces about how, you know, if you tell your child how you feel, you're making them codependent. Yes, yes, yes. And I just feel like this is a real big leap because the alternative is you're teaching your child that their emotions should always be centered and you as their caretaker have no emotions and (laughs) have no needs. And that feels like a terrible model for future relationships, like an absolutely terrible model for, Mm -hmm. you know, these kids to grow up being like, my emotions are always so complex and need centering and the people I relate to should always center them and not put their feelings on me ever. There's a quote in the Jessica Winter piece that I highlighted that she's talking about like the example of, I don't know, if your kid is having a meltdown and you're in the middle of vacuuming, you should by all means stop vacuuming and say to the kid, your feelings are more important than housework or housework can wait or whatever. And the Jessica Winter piece, she says, the housework that Einzig, who is quoted earlier, says... Oh, she's one of the Facebook ladies. She's one of the big positive parenting people. Yeah. The housework that Einzig says to put off is a synecdoche for everything that the gentle parent and perhaps the gently parented child's invisible siblings must push aside in order to complete a transformation into a self-renouncing, perpetually present humanoid who has nothing but time and who's programmed for nothing but calm. 
Yep. And like, it's also not doing great things, whatever gender our kids are, it's not doing great things for like how they might view like the female gender or like women, like as perpetually calm people who always put others' emotions first. And when is the vacuuming getting done? I mean, God, no shit, no shit. (laughs) Maybe you don't want to spend your whole day being interrupted during one chore that should take 15 minutes and now it took three hours because you had to keep stopping and starting to deal with your child's emotions at every second. Right. Like that's, that just feels bonkers to me. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And that feels very much of a piece with what we see in like larger momfluencer culture. That's the ballerina farm, like cleaning her house with a smile while the kids are frolicking around. And somehow this image of joy and yes, and calmness through domestic life. Yeah. It doesn't line up with anything I've ever experienced in domestic life. No. I don't think it lines up with most people's experience. No. And I don't know. I constantly talk to my kids about when I'm feeling overwhelmed or how a lot of work goes into keeping a house and raising kids. And I'm sure some gentle parenting advocates would tell me I'm like, you know, burdening my kids with my own suffering or whatever. But like, it's true. And, like, nobody ever talked to me about this openly, about how, right. like, being a parent and being a grown-up is hard. Making that work visible is so important for so many reasons. And we are never going to make progress on our larger cultural gender roles if we are continually downplaying yes. this work. And that's an interesting twist because, I mean— you know, I'm sure if you asked any of these gentle parenting experts, they would say, like, parenting's the most important work in the world. That's why they've devoted their careers to giving us all the scripts. Yeah. But when you're perpetually downplaying the hard parts of it, and when you're needing to perform it in this, like, really controlled way, you're not actually ever making visible the parts of it that we need to change. We talk about whatever generation is in therapy because of helicopter parenting or the prior generation is in therapy because of authoritative parenting. But like I can see a future where kids who are parented, you know, perfectly according to the gentle scripts turn into parents themselves and say like, what the fuck? This is hard (laughs) as shit. Like, why did my parents always present as so calm and pulled together? Yeah. I mean, that assumes anyone's able to actually execute gentle parenting, (laughs) which I really, really have my doubts that anybody is this parent even three days a week, (laughs) (laughs) let alone 24-7. Going back to the, like, hiding our emotions piece, you know, the other night, my child who, like I said, screams in fury if I try a gentle parenting script, (laughs) we were having a thing. And, you know, I finally said to her, I am a human being with emotions and you are hurting my feelings right now. And I like very aware, like one part of my brain was like, you are breaking all the rules. Like you aren't supposed to tell her that she's hurting your feelings. Right. And that was what kind of turned the corner in that particular moment. Like, I'm not saying she was like, I'm so sorry I hurt your feelings. There was no apology. But it did like make her pause for a moment and I think have this recognition of like, oh, right. I am powerful here. My words have impact. Like she was recognizing that and took a slight step back. And we were able to then get on a much better train of like decompressing from what had just happened. And I'm kind of glad I did that. I thought I had a lot, especially when I was parenting toddlers, was like, if an adult treated you like this, it would be an abusive relationship. And (laughs) yet we accept this from children. Like, I really think that is one of those things that is so hard about parenting is that 
because of course they are children and brains not fully developed right. and emotional <clears throat> capabilities are not fully developed. You literally sign up for accepting abuse. Yes. For several years. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that is what's happening. And yeah. it's not abuse, but it is also, it doesn't feel great. I'm sure you've had this experience where you are heated, you are furious, you're having big emotions, and the mm -hmm. person you're arguing with is stoic and calm and seemingly unaffected by your big emotions. Yeah, it sucks. It's the worst. It's the <laughs> worst. So, yeah. like, I can totally understand why being the kid at the receiving end of these scripts would be infuriating. Like, I'm kicking and screaming and, like, spitting yeah. at you. Why isn't this having any impact, you know? It feels kind of manipulative in that way. Like you're trying to make them feel powerless. And that is like some language they use sometimes. Like they need to see that they can't hurt you. Right. Because it's so upsetting to a three-year-old to think she can upset her mom. Right. And okay, maybe, but they also want a reaction. Like it, they want, they're right. looking for connection. Often the yelling is an attempt to get your attention and get your connection. Right. And so if you're giving them robot mom, you're not actually connecting with them authentically. Okay, so another big theme, my big division point with gentle parenting is the fact that they frame timeouts as an act of trauma. And so this is a big little feelings post. They are big in the space, and I have a lot of feelings about them. <laughs> and this post says, as adults, it would be incredibly hurtful to be ignored or worse, sent away during times of distress. So why would that ever be effective discipline for our toddlers? But actually, with both my kids... There are times when timeouts save my family because we all need to step away from each other. Yes. And I don't think it is punitive or traumatizing to teach a kid that when your feelings are so big that you can only deliver them to other people in hurtful ways, that you need to take some time. We call them cool downs, which is totally like trying to soften the language, yep, but they're yeah. timeouts. <laughs> you know, giving myself permission to use those with my kids has helped so much. I have a kid who, when she's having her biggest feelings, will remove herself. Like, her yeah. instinct is to go, and she'll, you know, sob, sob, sob for, like, 15 minutes or whatever. But if mm -hmm. I try to go in before 15 minutes, it's it's bad. And it's only after that she has that, like, cathartic release that she's even capable of connecting. I am sure there are kids who want to collapse on you yes. and want that, you know, and need that sort of experience. And I think, you know, if that's your kid, like, of course, that's what they need. But recognizing that if you yourself are someone who kind of needs to go like be alone to think through your big feelings, yeah. like, maybe your kid needs that too. And maybe it's okay. Another thing that I want to highlight that's giving me some big feelings in the caption. Mm -hmm. Oh boy. It says, when the parental response is to isolate the child, an instinctual psychological need of the child goes unmet. In fact, Oof. just wait for this one. In fact, brain imaging shows that the experience of relational pain, like that caused by rejection, looks very similar to the experience of physical <gasps> pain in terms of brain activity. Like, this is not great. There's no citation. There's no science. <laughs> like, I'm going to need to fact check the heck out of that. No, that like that just feels so manipulative and like playing into parental shame and guilt. I bet it's stemming from the same research used to argue for attachment parenting about how if you let a baby cry it out, yes. you're like inflicting physical pain on them. Right. And then when we actually looked at what data they were using, it was children who'd been neglected for months in orphanages. Right. It was not children in loving homes who right. were being asked to cry for 15 minutes to fall asleep. I'm guessing this is orphanage research again. And 
that research is very important for understanding the impact of true trauma, but it is not helpful to give to parents who are actually trying really hard to be decent parents. (laughs) And then the other trope I wanted to hit on is this speaking in the child's voice, where when the tantrum happens, this is what your child is really saying. They're trying to decode our kids for us. And these just always feel off to me because they're sort of acting like we know this from some kind of research or we know this because we're psychologists. But what they're actually doing is more like being a a fortune teller, right? It comes across more like horoscopes to me. Yeah, this one that you lunched to. This is from Rabin Einzig's, the one who's cited in Jessica Winter's piece. This is from, I went down a whole rabbit hole on her Facebook page. I just want to describe the image because it's doing a lot of work. Yes. It's like a painting of a very cherubic looking, I don't know, three or four year old whose eyes are just full of innocent wonder and who has like rosy little pursed lips. Mm -hmm. And she just looks like a blank canvas that you as the parent might be in danger of destroying, basically. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. And then the whole thing is, so it says, when you cut it for me, write it for me, open it for me, set it up for me, draw it for me, make it for me, or find it for me, All I learn is that you do it better than I do. So I'll let you do it. Yeah. And then they talk about how it's like called learned helplessness. But what does she say? In the textbooks, this is called learned helplessness. But actually, I call it clever on the part of the child and less than clever on the part of the adult. Oof. Burn. Like, that's a sick burn from a gentle parenting expert. (laughs) It is. Also, the quote, the when you cut it for me, write it for me, it says, quote, unknown. I mean, obviously, the quote is unknown. They just made it up. Right. No no child said that. It's not a real quote. Like, they're not quoting a human child because no child ever said, you know, mom, when you do this for me, all I learn is that you're better at things than me. This one's really thrown me for a loop here. It's another one of those, like, super super paralyzing pieces of advice because it's like, okay, I'm supposed to do literally nothing for my child so that they can. And I remember reading about this. I think it was Janet Lansbury or one of these folks where it was like, if you're drawing with your child and if they see like how you draw a cat, then they'll never learn how to draw a cat themselves, Mm -hmm. like in their own vision of a cat. And I remember trying to do that and being like, well, this just sucked all the fun out of drawing. I'm actually (laughs) kind of good at drawing cats. And now I feel like I can't draw a cat. (laughs) You're simultaneously supposed to do nothing for them so they can have all of these learning experiences, yet also be 100% emotionally available to the point you can't get your vacuuming done. And, like, how the hell are you supposed to get anything done if, like, you're letting a two-year-old, for example, do all of these things? You will spend your entire day having the two-year-old cut something or whatever. Yeah, put on socks. I mean, you will be on that journey. And, I mean, this is just one of those constant tensions of parenting where, you know, of course, they have to eventually learn to do these things for themselves. But when you're trying to get out of the door or, you know, set them up with an activity so you can get things done, like... Of course, you're going to do the hard parts for them because life demands Because of life. Like, really, because because of life. life. Okay, another quote from the Jessica Winter piece that we loved. She wrote, Gentle parenting advocates are near unanimous in the view that a child should never be told that she, quote, made mommy sad. She should focus on her internal weather rather than peering out the window. 
good job is usually not okay, even if you corroborate why the job is good, (laughs) because I said so is never okay, no matter how many times a child asks why she has to go to bed. So Sarah, when we were talking about this piece of it, you found like the mom influencer to end all mom influencers <laughs> on this. I mean, she's definitely the most extreme end of the spectrum. So tell us about Milk Giver, please. So I've been following her for a long time. And I don't know, she, this type of mom influencer is kind of catnip for me because they present as like very cool hipster, like maybe used to live in Brooklyn type of vibe. So, like, I'm initially attracted by, like, their shaker-style, like, fisherman sweaters or whatever. Definitely. And then I'm lured into the the messaging, which often gets into, like, really intense prescriptive nutrition stuff. Like, there's a lot Mm -hmm. of, like, a lot of beef liver gummy making. She is in a striped caftan-type garment. Mm -hmm. Like, it's a very amorphous garment. She has, I mean, I think I have the same mug as her right here. Just, you know, <laughs> hashtag influenced. I'm pretty sure she has an East Fork pottery mug. Yep, 100%. I'm not here to hate on her mug choice. I have yet to pull the trigger, but I'm sure I will, Virginia. I'm sure I will. You will not be sorry. And anyway, she is holding her mug of a hot beverage very close to her infant who is on her lap. And then her two older children are both sort of like clinging to her and one of them's kissing her. She's basically like buried in children mm-hmm. while having her morning coffee is the image. You know, Mary Cassatt paintings. Yes. Yes. It's giving me those vibes, like, you know, adoring children, beautific mother. And it's a long post. So I'm, the thesis of which is we as mothers have so much power over, you know, giving our children happy, trauma-free childhoods. So she says, for the most part, I as a mother hold the incredible power of creating happy childhoods for my little ones or not so happy childhoods, dot, dot, dot. And this is something I've been thinking about a lot lately. There have been so many recurring themes in my life and something I keep hearing in the health and wellness circles is how disease or illness can be caused by past trauma. How interesting is that to think about? So I'm not loving the direct connection between like if I yeah. slam the door or put my kid in timeout or lose my temper or mm-hmm. say something like you're driving me crazy that I might be traumatizing my kids, which might then down the road be giving them like cancer. It definitely defies the major thesis of like all parenting research, which is that good enough parenting is all you really need. It's also reminding me quite a lot of the shaming that fat moms get of like somehow your body then will be the cause of all of this downfall to your children. And again, Mm -hmm. that's not borne out by research. Yeah. And just, I don't know, I have a therapist friend and she's always like, I actually take a lot of comfort in the fact that my kids can talk about whatever parts of their childhood in therapy later down the road. Yeah. That's okay. That's a great point. It's okay if, you know, 20 years from now, my kid is like, ugh, mom always bitched about cleaning and how hard mm-hmm. childcare was. Like, that's okay. That's not the end of the world. You know, there are a lot of tools we can give our kids, including future therapy, to make up for our imperfections. Yeah. So Milk Giver is a lot of fun. I'm just looking at her her grid now, and it is many whimsical hats. It is a lot of homemade, looks like homemade dollhouse, homemade knitting, garlands. Lots of knitting. Yeah. 
Oh, and we should talk about the nutrition piece a little more because I also definitely want us to hit on the way gentle parenting intersects with diet culture. Mm-hmm. I think, what was it? You said calf liver gummies. Yeah, there's, there's which, so many gummies. How do you even make liver into a gummy? I mean, I know she'll have a tutorial for me, but know. that's definitely one. Can we also talk about the fact this woman doesn't have a name? Like, she's just milk giver. I do know her first name just because I've been following her forever. But yeah, the fact that her identity is the giving of milk to children by way of her Instagram handle is, says a lot, I guess. Even in the bio line, it's just wife and mother of three, homeschooling, gentle parenting, Orthodox Christianity, knitting, nutrition, simple living. Like, no name in there. No name. No identity for you outside of how you serve your family. Go to, do you see the third photo on the grid with the dried oranges? Okay, so the image is like her shooting a selfie in the mirror. She's holding a baby, of course. You see her homemade orange garlands. And then she writes, How did I get here? From being a fast food junkie to vegan teen to full-out cigarette and alcohol-addicted young adult to mama of three religiously wearing her blue blocker glasses in the evenings, taking raw liver shots, and avoiding fluoride at all costs. This crunchy mama road isn't always an easy one, and high five to anyone else desperately trying to keep their kids away from the junk being thrown at them right and left. I see you. It's not always an easy path, but it is one I enjoy and ultimately follow because I like feeling good, I like keeping my kids healthy, and I like having energy because that helps me to be a better mom. That's my top goal in life currently, and being mostly healthy helps a lot with it. It'd also be cool to live a long time, but who knows? Hashtag crunchy mama. Hashtag embrace the crunch. (sighs) Sarah, I don't like it. I don't like it at all. I knew you wouldn't. I now realize the sunglasses she's wearing in the selfie are her blue blocker glasses. (laughs) I mean, she's just combining so many different things. Like... Okay, fast food junkie is not the same thing as an alcoholic. Like, right. let's be real clear about right. that. It's not the same thing as being addicted to cigarettes. Like, addiction is a terrible thing that destroys lives. Eating a lot of fast food is not the same thing. Even the term junkie in that yeah. context, not. You're not a junkie because you like fast food. That's right. not. It's right. not the same thing. And then this whole message of, okay, so you have to take, like, the hardest road to do everything. Right. And... You know, even if you don't want to eat fast food every day, there's like a big gulf between that and taking raw liver shots and avoiding fluoride. Like, we're just combining every possible wellness trend. Uh And like, it's like she needs to check every single box here in a way that's exhausting and overwhelming and not at all doable for anybody, not at all sustainable and also not necessary. Nobody needs raw liver shots in their lives. Like people have lived to be a hundred years old without ever taking a raw liver shot. (laughs) I also don't like the use of the word desperate, like high five to anyone else desperately trying to keep their kids away from the junk. Like how about we desperately try to give all kids access to food, period. That would be cool. There are more worthwhile causes to be desperate about than, I just feels like such a classic trope of the Mm self-optimizing white motherhood stuff, to quote her, because I like feeling good, I like keeping my kids healthy. Mm -hmm. So basically implying that if she were not to 
follow all these super strict guidelines, she would knowingly be not giving yes. her kids a healthy life. Also, like the just the cuteness of like, well, that's just me. I like feeling good. I like having healthy kids. Like, <laughs> oh, really? Do you think like mothers living in poverty don't like to feel good? They're not feeding their kids enough food every day because they don't like having healthy kids. Right. <laughs> like, this isn't a whimsical choice for you. This is something you can do because you have a ton of privilege. Yep. And let's also talk about if you are a parent desperately trying to keep your kid away from junk food, how fast that's going to backfire <laughs> and harm your child's relationship with junk food. I mean, uh -huh. how many letters do I get? This is probably the number one question I am asked is a parent saying our child is sneaking this food behind our back. I mean, it's just how it plays out every time because... Yep. You know, kids know that your raw liver gummies are not as delicious <laughs> as their friend's gummy bears. And the other thing, as you're speaking, that's kind of hysterical to me is this is also not really in agreement with gentle parenting because we're supposed to, like, enable our kids to have the tools within themselves to navigate yeah. life. Yeah. So this feels like a direct contradiction. So the interesting thing about the way gentle parenting and diet culture intersect is most gentle parenting folks are really big proponents of division of responsibility, which is about empowering kids to listen to their bodies and trust their own hunger and fullness. So you're not counting bites. You're not like requiring them to finish stuff or, you know, eat their broccoli before they have the cookie. But the problem is it gets layered in with this idea of okay, well, if my job is to choose what to eat, I have to choose things like calf liver gummies and green smoothies and all of these perfectly healthy things. Mm -hmm. And then I'm frustrated because my kid still is asking for a little bites muffins as opposed to my like homemade spelt muffins or whatever. Right. It's just sort of using the division of responsibility concept as a script for diet culture mm -hmm. and not recognizing that you aren't actually empowering your kid then. You're still restricting, you're still trying to control them, but you've like sort of co-opted this other rhetoric to do it. Well, and I'm sure you've written and talked about this before, but what happens if you are so hyper-controlling the environment that your kid is choosing from? Like, what happens when your kid enters the real world of actual yeah. food choice? Those are the kids who go on playdates and eat the whole sleeve of Oreos at their friend's house or eat sugar by the spoonful. I am not shaming those kids. I am not shaming those parents. Like, it's just, it's a totally natural response. Right. You've been restricted. These foods have been banned. Forbidden fruit is really powerful and really tempting. And you, you know, of course, are then going to want to have as much of it as you can get because you don't know when you're going to get it again. You know your mom's not going to let this stuff in the house. So it's super understandable. This is another thing where they give us a lot of scripts. I had linked to a Big Little Feelings post that says, Instead of saying, no, I already poured yogurt, so that's what we're eating. Oh, fine, stop crying. Here's some cereal. Try, I hear you want cereal. Yogurt and granola are on the menu for breakfast today. Do you want the blue bowl or the orange bowl? You pick. Okay, <laughs> so my response as my kid is, I don't want either bowl. Exactly. <laughs> right, like, fuck the bowl, ladies. Like, we're not talking about the bowl. Yes. We're talking about how I don't want yogurt and granola. Like, yes. So again, it's giving you this script that is not going to solve anything because now they're going to be like, I also want the purple bowl for my cereal. <laughs> like, giving them the choice of the bowls is not going to distract them from the fact that they want cereal. <laughs> no. Especially if you are coming at it from a mindset where you're not offering cereal very often. So they are especially fixated on wanting cereal. And so I'm not saying you should cave in the moment and be a short order cook and just like immediately whisk off the bowl of yogurt and granola and give them the cereal. But 
you might do better to say like, let me pack cereal for your snack for school. Or I totally hear you, you know, let's make sure we have cereal for breakfast tomorrow. If we're going to give kids permission to have all their big feelings, like let's spend some time on the big feeling about cereal instead of just like moving right past it and trying to distract them with the bowl choices. Right. That feels so counter to like the larger message of what they tell us to do. (laughs) But it's because she doesn't want to give in on the cereal. So she's trying to control from a sort of diet culture perspective on the food. And then the gentle parenting quickly falls apart (laughs) in the face of that goal. I also want to say it's fine if sometimes you do say, yeah, you know what? I'm going to grab you the bowl of cereal. Like making a bowl of cereal is not the most time consuming thing. If this allows you to move on with your morning because it's just been one of those mornings and maybe you're going to eat the yogurt and granola or someone else will eat it. Like it's fine. It happens. Right. Right. (laughs) We don't need to feel like we failed because we did that. And that's another piece of this is like when you don't follow the scripts perfectly, you have to feel like you got it wrong. Right. Totally. Well, let's wrap up by talking about some parenting folks we do like. The person I really like that I wanted to talk about is Claire Lerner. She is the author of the book, Why Is My Child in Charge? I am going to put in a caveat that her chapter on food is not totally there. There's definitely some diet culture stuff in it. So I'm not recommending her on the food piece. But this was a really useful book for me to read because she does help parents understand why we end up in those power struggles. And a big thing I like, number one, she's pro timeouts when the Mm -hmm. kid needs it. She sort of recognizes a place for timeouts and all of this. She also really encourages parents to hold boundaries and not feel guilty about it, which I think gentle parenting absolutely does not do. One line that she uses that I do really like is, you don't have to like this. And I've actually started using this. Like when I do say no to my kids about something and they throw a fit, I'm like, I know you don't have to like it, but this is what we're doing. Yeah. And that has been so liberating because then I am like, well, of course they're having a tantrum. They don't like being told TV's done for the day. Right. But they don't have to like it. We're just doing it. Yeah. And that's been really a little nugget that I found quite helpful. So she is one person I recommend. And then you have some other influencers who look great. So Destiny Ann is one of them. What I immediately love is her sense of humor. Like, it's just so approachable. And so she does, like, a great job of validating. Like, the parents' emotions and, you know, the mother's emotions are always, they're always valued Mm -hmm. in Mm -hmm. her, you know, like she'll have little scripts or whatever, but her Instagram bio says, sign up for parent coaching below, peaceful parent, but real AF. Like Mm -hmm. that kind of tells you what you need to know. Bet you're doing a great job. Yeah. I like it. I like it a lot. Yeah. This looks funny, relatable. Mommy needs a minute. Yeah. Right. I like that. And gentle is not my default. Acknowledging that gentleness is, yeah, not everybody's default and is is labor also. Gentleness is labor. Yes. Okay, who next? So there's Erica M. Burrell. And she's another one that folks have mm-hmm. sent to me. And I linked to one of her reels where she's talking about how gentle parenting is not something that white people own. That's really interesting. Because yeah, because that certainly is the impression you get on Instagram. Right. And there's, you know, Black parents have talked a lot about how just like, Black culture plays into parenting mores and how there is a lot of judgment often, you know, 
lobbed by white people towards Black parenting mm-hmm. without bothering to engage with Black culture or even, like, learn about Black culture or, or try to understand Black culture. So sure. her perspective, I think, is really important. Yeah, that's excellent. And then Supernova Mama. So in her Instagram bio, it says, Certified, positive, disciplined parent, educator, mother of two, autism, neurodiversity, acceptance. Sometimes I twerk. (laughs) (laughs) Love it. A lot of her content speaks specifically to neurodiversity, which I can imagine being so, so tricky to maneuver in the gentle parenting space. Yeah. I mean, I think anytime your kid is dealing with something extra, whether it's a disability, neurodiversity, certain life experiences, you know, this is the sort of disconnect where you then try to follow the rules they're laying out. And your kid has a completely opposite, different reaction to it. And then you feel like you did something wrong when, in fact, the advice wasn't thinking about your kid at all. Almost all the problems with gentle parenting, I feel like, arise from not respecting both the parents' individuality and the kids' individuality. Like, yes. both you and I have talked about, you know, specific parenting experiences where we intuit what our kid needs in that moment. We yeah. intuit that the script is not going to work for either of us. So we make a choice based on our knowledge of our kids, you know, Mm -hmm. specific needs and specific personalities and our own specific needs and specific personalities. Yeah. And I think it speaks to the fact that as a culture, we don't really empower parents. We especially don't empower moms to have that confidence in ourselves. Like you're sort of simultaneously expected to know, you know, as soon as you get the baby, exactly what to do and have all this motherly intuition that guides you and do it perfectly. But you're also not really empowered to feel like you can make the right choices because we have such rigid standards and expectations. And I just think it is helpful to start to realize you can make choices for yourself on this stuff. There is not a parenting police. Dr. Becky's not going to come to your house (laughs) and edit your scripts. Right, right. Wow. This was really great. Let's do Better for Your Burnt Toast. Sarah, what do you have for us? So my new little obsession is Jessica DeFino's newsletter. It is so good. I just, I'm like a new discoverer of it. So it's called The Unpublishable. And it's basically a takedown of the beauty industry. And I just find it so, so delicious. I do this thing on Instagram where I'll like post an Instagram ad and just sort of like... (laughs) culturally critiqued the text or the Mm -hmm. copy Mm -hmm. because there's some rich, rich texts out there. Mm -hmm. And she does this so, so well. She's so funny. She's so smart. And I interviewed her recently for my newsletter. She's kind of doing for beauty culture what I try to do for diet culture. And so she doesn't take advertisers. It is so rare to find beauty content that is not tied to advertising. Like so, so, so rare. So she's a great choice. Hopefully, she will be on a Burt Toast episode soon. Stay tuned. (laughs) Um, It's in the works. Okay, my recommendation is a recommendation that I feel, I feel like this was a place in my life I've been journeying to for a long time, (laughs) Um, that I was always meant to be this person, and now I finally am, is um, I am now someone who does puzzles. (laughs) And... I think no one is surprised, if you know me at all, that I am now in the puzzling phase of my life, that I am a puzzler. Yeah, yeah. Um, I started it while we were on vacation. We had two days of a sick kid because that's how family vacations roll. 
And so we were in our Airbnb and they had a bunch of puzzles. And I was like, I'm going to do some puzzles while we're hanging out here. And it was so soothing. And oh, man. So I came home and I found we, I think my husband always knew this about me before I knew it about myself. And so several years ago for Christmas, he had given me an 1,000 piece puzzle and he'd given me this cool it's like a felt mat thing. So you can do the puzzle, but you can also like roll it up if you're not done and you don't want to like leave it out. Cause like I have a dog and kids and you know, like I can't leave the puzzle out all the time. So he'd given me this and I just had not used it amazingly. And so I went, I came home and like dug it out of the closet and now I'm working on this puzzle in the evenings. (laughs) I'm so happy. I'm just so happy. And it was definitely at the point on vacation where my kids were like, can we have lunch? And I was like, no, (laughs) I'm doing this puzzle. Yeah, it sucks you in. Yeah, I was like, I'm not a parent right now. I'm a puzzler. You have to raise yourselves. <laughs> That's amazing. I hate when I will start a puzzle. The kids will be nowhere in sight to do the hard, like, edges or whatever. Yeah. And then they'll, like, come in like little vultures as soon as I'm down to, like, 50 pieces. That's when they want to get into yes. it. That's interesting. And then They're they like, try to, to, yeah, like, back off. Don't steal my thunder. No, I'm going to have this glory. Yeah. Yeah. Mine did not want to do it at all. My older daughter did sort of like sit and haze me while I was doing it for a while, which was like fun for both of us. Um, (laughs) But I think she's got a puzzler in her too, but Mm. she's just not there yet. You know, I think it'll come out. Sure. Especially now that this is my life. And your identity. It's my identity now. Yes. And what it's really great for is like recently this week, I had a piece getting some pushback on Twitter. And I was having a day where looking at Twitter was not going to be helpful to me anymore. And that evening I put the phone down and puzzled away instead of looking at Twitter. And I was like really proud of myself. Um, All right, Sarah, thank you so much for being here. Tell everyone where we can find you and find your newsletter. Yeah, definitely check out my newsletter. It's called In Pursuit of Clean Countertops. I'm on Instagram at s. Louise Peterson with an E and I am on Twitter as the same thing. Got it. We will link to that. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening to Burnt Toast. Once again, if you'd like to support the show, please subscribe for free in your podcast player and tell a friend about this episode, especially if they are a new parent struggling under the weight of expectations. This will help. Please consider a paid subscription to the Burnt Toast newsletter. It is just $5 a month or $50 for the year. You get a ton of cool perks and you keep this in ad and sponsor-free space. Find out more at virginiasoulsmith.substack.com. The Burnt Toast podcast is produced and hosted by me, Virginia Soulsmith. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at V underscore Soulsmith. Our transcripts are edited and formatted by Corinne Fay, who runs at Trade Plus, an Instagram account where you can buy and sell plus-size clothing. The Burnt Toast logo is by Deanna Lowe. Our theme music is by Jeff Bailey and Chris Maxwell. And Tommy Heron is our audio engineer. Thanks for listening and supporting independent anti-diet journalism.